Our speaker tonight is uh, Hosan Allen Sanuki, a Soto Zen priest in the tradition of Shunyu Suzuki Roshi. He was ordained by Sojun Mel Weitzman in 1989. Allen is presently the head of practice at the Berkeley Zen Center in California, where he lives with his wife and two children. He is also senior advisor to the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, where he has served as executive director for more than a decade. In another realm, Alan has been a student and performer of American traditional music for more than 40 years. Welcome. Thank you. It's always really nice to be back here. Pool? Yeah. (laughs) Gee. Well, um, the Dharma is everywhere. Um, Last time I was here, we were actually, I was with Hung Shur and Betsy Rose, and we were singing songs, which was really enjoyable. Uh, and I was pleased to uh, get asked back by, by Gil uh, and happy to come down here in this really strange and stormy evening. Wow, the weather coming over the bridge was, it was really dramatic. Uh, so I'm glad to be here. I came with my, my friend Santi Caro, whom some of you might know from Sati Center events. Uh, he's visiting with us in, in Berkeley from his home base in Chicago and uh, uh, really uh, he's probably better equipped to give this talk than I am but since I was asked to do so I will do so. This is what uh, uh, is known at least in the Zen tradition giving a talk is uh, known as making a mistake on purpose. Uh, uh, so I'm going to forge ahead. I was talking with Gil a bit on the phone and uh, you know, asking what was up and he was suggesting that given my engaged Buddhist background it's always uh, useful for me to come in and talk about uh, the application of Dharma in the world uh, especially in the troubled world uh, that we have uh, uh, Santi Caro and I on the way down uh, were talking and uh, you know it it's a very difficult time and it seems to be getting more difficult and what at least I'm experiencing and maybe some of you are is uh, you can't keep that difficulty at arm's length. Uh, Yes, the war is going on in Iraq and uh, sometimes we can go through our daily life uh, seeming to keep these things at a great distance from ourselves. Uh, But really what's happening is that this kind of, uh, the kind of violence that's going on in the world is uh, in one way or another it's manifesting I feel it manifesting in my life I feel you know I can see its its tensions on people and uh, you know it leads me to uh, think back I'm of an age where I can remember uh, the time of the Vietnam War pretty clearly and uh, remember how it feels like whole years of feeling quite crazed 
and uh, uh, groping for a way to uh, respond, for the words to speak, uh, for the things to do, uh, and not not ever feeling like uh, we were arriving at the right ones, and yet consistently trying again and again to speak, to act. So I thought, in talking with Gil, I'd, I would talk a little bit about uh, an overview of right speech and uh, sometimes uh, might think of, it, think of uh, that Quaker adage, speaking truth to power. Uh, and I've been thinking of it more as speaking truth in power. Uh, speaking truth that emerges from how can we speak truth that emerges from the, the ground of silence you know say that we've experienced for the last 45 minutes here and that you touch into day after day uh, and to speak from that place from knowing uh, the intimate connection that one has with oneself with others uh, in the room, but then realizing that this ground is like uh, a substratum for our entire planet, for all species that flows uh, like molten rock underneath everything and that connects us all. So one of, uh, one of my teachers and uh, one of Gil's teachers, I believe, uh, Dainin Katagiri Roshi, uh, who passed away about 18 years ago. Uh, he wrote two books. And I'm not sure if this was his title or his students or his editor's students' titles, but the first book was called uh, Returning to Silence. You know, it was about how do you touch, how do you keep returning to that ground of silence, to that place of being uh, at the center of oneself and at the center of things, uh, of all life. And the second book that he wrote was titled, You Have to Say Something. Uh, you know, it, it, I had these books on my shelf and I never put them together and all of a sudden I realized, wait, there's really a coherent message here. I don't even have to read the books. All I can do is just look at the spines and see, you have to say something. That's the responsibility that we have uh, as people. That's the responsibility that emerges from this ground of silence, uh, from our intimate experience and understanding of interconnection. But what do we say? And how do we say it? So, as you probably know, the right speech or samavaja is uh, it's the third uh, of the factors in the eightfold path. Uh, fourth, third, I think. Um, right view, right intention, right speech right livelihood, right action. I actually have written down. Uh, right, right action, right livelihood, right, right effort, right awareness, and right concentration. Anyway, 
that's according to the list that I have. Uh, yeah. So anyway. <laughs> um, you know, in a number of our, in our different Buddhist traditions, uh, you probably have the five, you probably have studied the five precepts, is that right? Uh, so, uh, not speaking falsely or not lying would be the precept of right speech, is that correct? In the Zen tradition, uh, most of the Japanese traditions, uh, or the, we take what's called the Bodhisattva precepts, and uh, we uh, we break the precept of right speech into three components, um, just so we can so we can understand the subtleties of it a little better. I've been studying for the last couple of years uh, in the Jewish tradition, uh, in the Talmudic tradition. There's uh, commentary. Uh, it's called Loshan Hara, which also is essentially right speech. Uh, and the list, the list of uh, prescriptions goes on and on and on. Uh, very, very meticulous. Uh, very detailed. So I was trying to think, why does, why does right speech matter to me? Um, what's my stake in it? I think all of us have a stake in it, but for me, uh, you know, I've been studying this, some of these Talmudic teachings because uh, my, at least my ethnic background is Jewish, and that's pretty deep in me, uh, even though I don't, I don't practice it as a religion or a spiritual path. Uh, but uh, I have noticed that. Uh, Jews like to talk. You know, we are we are given to talking a lot, and I'm, I'm willing to make that that sweeping generalization. Uh, and uh, silence is uh, perhaps too rare a commodity. Uh, at least it was in my house uh, when I was growing up. And I remember a few years ago, I uh, I went to a Shabbat. I was in Jerusalem. Uh, and I went to a Shabbat there. We were invited, this bunch of peacemakers, and you know, it went on and on and on. And it's like I found myself getting very irritated. It's like, well, couldn't we be quiet for like a minute? You know, <laughs> did everything have to be filled with words or song? Um, but I think that. Uh, what I discovered in myself as I was growing up is that I, yes, I like to talk uh, and I have to control that. I tend to talk forcefully. I tend to talk, talk with a kind of definitive quality as if I really know what I'm talking about, uh, which I don't always. But, if I, but I can put that personal energy behind it uh, and it seems like I do. Uh, not always so helpful. I also like the silence. I really like this, just sitting here. I remember every time I come here, I don't usually sit this time of evening, but you know, to sit down and just have this really thick carpet of silence that you can rest on uh, is wonderful. 
And I find that in the zendo. I find that uh, when I go to prison. So uh, I need that as an antidote to this kind of uh, what I perceive as the uh, bull in the shi- bull in the china shop aspect of my personality. Uh, that uh, may not be always obvious to you, uh, but it's obvious to people around me, uh, perhaps more than I might like. Um, so I can be, I can speak forcefully, I can be blunt, I can be loud, uh, I can be careful, I can be polite. But all of this calls for uh, attention. It calls for actually elements, other elements of the Eightfold Path. It calls for a view, who I'm speaking to, uh, what the purpose is that I'm speaking about, understanding the situation. It calls for an intention, you know, an intention to, the intention to connect rather than the intention to divide. Uh, or it may be the intention to say something that is true rather than to say something that is self-serving. And it calls for, sometimes it calls for an effort. Uh, I'm sure like, I'm sure many of you have the experience of just somebody does something or somebody says something and you just really want to cut loose, right? You just want to blast somebody. Maybe you don't all have that uh, in you, but I'll bet 50% of you in this room do. Uh, you know, you just really want to, you want to lash out, you know, and you want to do it with, with language. Uh, it seems safer, perhaps, than doing it uh, physically in some way. And of course, you know, maybe we're too polite for that. But it is, uh, the world turns on words. Wars are fought over words. People kill each other over words. And words are not, words are like arrows or like bullets. You know, uh, if I get mad at Santi Carlo and draw back my fist, to punch him out, which has never happened. Uh, he's bigger than me anyway. Uh, in the drawing back of my fist, I have a moment, you know, I can hold it back and I can put it down. Uh, but if I say something cutting to him, if I say something insulting, if I say something harsh, if I say something angry, if I say something mean, I can never take that back. That's gone, you know, and that's hit its target, and it's it's created a wound which will scar, and it's created uh, an energy between us. It has a, it has a karmic effect. So the Ma, what I was saying, the Mahayana tradition uh, has breaks it down into. Uh, Three particular precepts of speech: the uh, the vow not to lie or speak falsely, 
the vow not to dwell on the mistakes of others uh, and the vow not to praise myself at the expense of others, not to put myself above another. Uh, so this is kind of uh, in typical Mahayana fashion, uh, sort of uh, via negativa. Uh, you know, in the larger fashion, Mahayana Buddhism uh, deconstructs our self-centered ideas by saying, well, not this, not this, not this. You know, and you have to keep, you know, you keep cutting away at your conception of what exists. Uh, you know, we keep wanting to construct things, a thing that we call myself. And the Mahayana methodology is just to keep saying, no, not that, no, that's not really real. And it applies to the, the precepts are that way. All precepts are like that. Precepts are limitations. They're proscriptions. Uh, they're kind of warning guideposts of where not to go. Uh, so in our... There's wonderful language. Uh, I don't know if you ever study about Dogen here. Uh, maybe not. Uh, but Gil has. It's a... 13th century uh, Zen master who is kind of at the root of our school. Uh, so he has his commentaries on the precepts. And, uh, he says, uh, you know, in the realm for the first one, uh, the first of the three, the vow not to lie, in the realm of the inexplicable Dharma, putting forth not one word is the precept of not speaking dishonestly. Uh, the Dharma wheel turns from the beginning. There is neither, neither surplus nor lack. The sweet dew covers the earth and harvests the truth. Uh, it's very beautiful poetic language. But, uh, so, but this is in the realm of the inexplicable Dharma. In other words, we can never really get to the truth of what the Dharma is. We can't explain it. Uh, we can't get to the essence of it um, and so uh, we don't say one false word uh, or if we don't say a word that's called the precept of not speaking dishonestly and yet we can't stop there we can't just not speak a word we have to come forward we have to say something his second uh Precept, not dwelling on the mistakes of others. Uh, he says, in the realm of the flawless Dharma, not expounding upon error is the precept of not dwelling on past mistakes. In the Buddha Dharma, there is one path, one Dharma, one realization, one practice. And then he says, prescriptively, do not... Uh, engage in fault-finding, do not allow haphazard talk. So, uh, in this, the realm of the flawless Dharma, uh, you know, since the Dharma is perfect, all-pervading, uh, without any kind of 
fault or flaw. And because we are all vessels, we are all an expression of Buddha Dharma, uh, how could there be any mistakes? How could we dwell on the mistakes of others? Uh, Because every mistake is an opportunity. So the third precept is the precept of not praising self at the expense of others. Uh, And here Dogen writes, in the realm of the equitable Dharma, not dwelling upon I versus you is the precept of not praising self or blaming others. Uh, So uh, the equitable Dharma sees Uh, each of us as equal. Uh, It's an antidote to this uh, leaning that we have of wanting to uh, find ourselves either to to conceptualize hierarchies in the way that we are one up or one down or two or three down or two or three up in other words, uh, in that sense, uh, in this context, the, the Dharma is a, level playing, is a level playing field. So these are all, these are very useful uh, in kind of outlying, outline, outli- outlining the limitations of speech, where we should not go with it. But this is not, we also have to have something positive. We have to have a sense of what is right speech. And the Buddha talked about it uh, in, in, several, in several contexts uh, in, the, in the Pali Sutras uh, and several sets of, of conditions. In one, uh, one place, it boils down to speaking, that right speech is speaking what is true, what is useful, and what is timely. Uh, and that in another place, uh, he says, uh, and I'll quote, this is from the, uh, the Anguttara Nikaya, these five conditions must be investigated in himself. And what, uh, one, do I speak at the right time or not, so it's timely. Do I speak of facts or not? True. Do I speak gently or harshly? Do I speak profitable words or not? Useful. Do I speak with a kindly heart or inwardly malicious? Oh, because these five conditions are to be investigated in himself, and the latter five established in himself. Uh, by a practitioner who desires to admonish another. But actually, this applies in all situations, in all situations of speech. Uh, and in, in various texts, uh, uh, the Buddha will outline these things and he'll say, all of these conditions have to be present before you speak. Uh, you know, if something is true, but it's not useful, and you can imagine that, then you remain silent. If something 
you know, even if, if it's true and useful, fine, but if it's not the right time, you don't speak. So, um, these, are, these are really useful guidelines, and I rely on them a lot. But I think we come to a place often in our lives where we're not certain what is useful, we're not certain what is timely, and sometimes we're not even certain what is true. Uh, the, the truth is uh, a hazardous commodity. Uh, what I've, I, I've seen a lot within, within community particularly. Where we, I live at the Berkeley Zen Center. I've been living there for 19 years. Uh, and when you have somebody who's suffering or is having a hard time, particularly if they're in, in conflict with someone, uh, very often they will fall back in this position. Well, this is my truth. These are these are deadly words to me. I I've learned it. My truth. Immediately, it's like, okay, I need to go and have a drink of water or something, uh, because what they're really standing on, uh, they're they're not standing on this notion of truth. They're standing on my. You know, and if you don't have the skill to really meet them with with empathy and with sympathy and with compassion, uh, then when you make a case, say, raise a question about uh, their perception of the truth, the way that is perceived is you are questioning them. You're questioning their being and their existence. And usually that is not very well received. <laughs> not, and it's not appreciated. It hurts. Uh, because somebody is hurt already. Because they're scared. Uh, because they feel they have been treated unjustly. Which may or may not be the case. What's you often really interesting is if you're you know, if you're mediating a situation or you're going back and forth, uh, you know, what you are hearing from people are two seemingly completely contradictory views of narratives about what happened. And of course, you weren't there. So you don't know. Uh, so how do you work with that? Uh, so also in... Um, Elsewhere in, in this is in the Kunda Kamarata Kunda Kamaraputta Sutta, uh, and I'm getting I'm, uh, moving along here through to get to some questions I want to put before you. Uh, there's a case where a certain person abandoning false speech, abandoning abstains from false speech when he has been called to a town meeting, a group meeting, a gathering of his relatives, his guild, or of the royalty, if he is asked as a witness, come and tell good man what you know. If he doesn't know, he says, I don't know. If he does know, he says, I know. If he hasn't seen, he says, I haven't seen. 
If he has seen, he says, I have seen. Thus, he doesn't consciously tell a lie for his own sake or for the sake of another or for the sake of any reward. Abandoning false speech, he abstains from false speech. He speaks the truth, holds to the truth, is firm, reliable, no deceiver of the world. So, maybe this speaks to our social circumstance. Uh, Dogen said someplace else he spoke about loving speech and he wrote we should know that loving speech arises from a loving mind and that the seed of a loving mind is compassionate heart we should study how loving speech has the power to transform the world so this is the real question. How do we speak? How do we act to transform the world? What are the magical words that will stop the war? Do they exist? Could we conceivably know what they are? What do we say out of our understanding, out of the depth of silence that we must say, perhaps not even knowing whether it is, whether it is useful or timely, Perhaps we don't even speak it gently. Perhaps we don't even speak it with a kindly heart. Maybe we're not capable of that. Do we speak? What do we do? It's a very difficult question. I was asked, um, one, I've been thinking about these questions for years, but I was asked to participate in a, uh, a lecture series and I, I left some brochures out on the table at San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, and the Friday night lectures, uh, this is, I think May 5th, is being given by Daniel Ellsberg. And then they asked me to do the, a workshop the next day sort of following up on that, and I found it rather daunting. Uh, so I went out and uh, bought a copy of this book, which I really recommend. It's called Secrets, a memoir of the Vietnam, of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers by Daniel Ellsberg. It's a really excellent book about the evolution of consciousness, language, and action. Uh, and uh, I had an opportunity to meet him. We've been, through Buddhist Peace Fellowship, we've been having a series of vigils outside uh, Bolt Hall, the law school at UC Berkeley, who has, Bolt Hall has hired this guy, John Yu. You know about him? He's, he's really the architect of the kind of the legal justification for, uh, uh, ex for, for torture and extreme behavior towards uh, towards prisoners uh, in uh, 
the so-called war on terrorism. Uh, supposedly he's a very nice guy. He's obviously very bright, but uh, and we haven't been, the vigils are not ad hominem attacks on him. John Yu. Yeah, everybody says he's a very nice guy. Uh, this is just what he thinks, you know, and this, these are the policies that, that he's uh, helped build and put into action. Um, so our, you know, our vigils are not ad hominem attacks on him, but they're looking at the nature of action. In the same way, uh, and, and Daniel Ellsberg was there the first week and I spoke with him a little, because when I thought about it, uh, and I don't know how many of you remember the release of the Pentagon Papers and know about it. So, so Ellsberg was a, uh, he had been a Marine, uh, he was a confirmed cold warrior and he was in the, and he was in the uh, Defense Department and the State Department in the early 1960s. He went to Vietnam for a couple of years uh, to see what was happening on the ground and uh, he saw this wasn't workable. Uh, and if you'll allow me, let me, he, so he's flying back from Vietnam, uh, a plane with uh, Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time. Uh, sorry, i got to find this. Uh, so on the return flight to Washington a week later, as we got near the end of the journey, McNamara called me to the rear of the plane where he was standing with Bob Comer, who was special assistant to the president, coordinating Washington efforts on pacification. McNamara said, Dan, you're the one who can settle this. Comer here is saying that we've made a lot of progress in pacification. I say that things were worse than they were a year ago. This is in 1966. What do you say? I said, well, Mr. Secretary, I'm most impressed with how much the same things are as they were a year ago. They were pretty bad then, but I wouldn't say it was worse now, just about the same. McNamara said triumphantly, that proves what I'm saying. We've put more than 100,000 more troops into the country over the last year, and there's been no improvement. Things aren't better at all. That means the underlying situation is really worse. Isn't that right? I said, well, you could say that. It's an interesting way of seeing that. Just then the plane began to go into a turn and the pilot announced, gentlemen, we are approaching Andrews Air Force Base. Please take your seats. Uh, Ten minutes later we were on the ground. Uh, McNamara was descending the ladder with us behind him. It was a foggy morning and there was an arc of television lights and cameras set up at the podium uh, at the spot the plane had taxied to. In the center of the arc there was a podium covered with microphones. McNamara strode over to the mics and said to the crowd of reporters, Gentlemen, I've just come back from Vietnam and I'm glad to be able to tell you that we're showing great progress in every dimension of our effort. I'm very encouraged by everything I've said and heard on my trip. So, you know, this is the same reality that we are experiencing here. What Ellsberg discovered were 7,000 pages of uh, documents and analysis in the Pentagon uh, archives that went back to the Truman administration in every case the Defense Department, the President and virtually every high official knew this war was unwinnable and they had the documentation he had it in his hand 
And this is what he released. He went around from senator to senator to get them to take a stand and re you know release these papers on their own, for which there would be no. Uh, they would they had immunity from legal consequences. Uh, everybody said yes, yes, you know, really good, really important. Nobody would do it. Finally, in 1971, after two years of trying to get them to people to release it in the government, he released it himself to the New York Times at the risk of 115 years in prison. He released it, big splash in all the newspapers, and a number of newspapers, the, the Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, and other papers published big sections of this. Uh, tremendous news, very exciting. Uh, did nothing. This is 1971. In 1972, uh, what did it say here? Uh, in 1972, more bombs were dropped on North Vietnam from May 1972 to December than were, than were absorbed by any country in history. The war itself did not end until all US, U.S. personnel were withdrawn in April of 1975. So, speaking truth to power, speaking truth in power, taking that risk, it appeared not to end the war. But if you look really closely at the workings of karma, it did end the war. It took way, way too long, thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. But what happened, you know, Ellsberg released these papers and internally the government freaked out or the unstable president that we had at the time freaked out, Richard Nixon. Uh, and developed this cockamamie response of breaking into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. And those were the plumbers who went from the psychiatrist's office to the Democratic National Committee, uh, which was the beginning of Watergate, which was the unraveling of the Nixon administration. Uh, and it, with its demise, the war then became a politically supportable thing ultimately to end but it took years. So what I'm saying here is that there was a karmic activity and even though that activity did not have its proposed effect or its expected effect, the strength of that action of speaking truth in power, of releasing these documents and being willing to take the risk, which Ellsberg was completely willing to take the risk of going to prison. He expected to go to prison. Uh, and if the government hadn't been so completely um, amateurish about, and uh, I don't even know what the word is, uh, but if they hadn't broken into his, to his psychiatrist's office, he probably would have gone to prison. But we do things, sometimes we do things that are true and they, are, they may be useful and we don't know what the timeliness of them are. 
but we do them in consultation with our friends, with our teachers, with our allies, with our families, and we determine this is what must be done, and we do it with a full willingness to absorb the consequences. And having done that, if it is in fact a wholesome action, which this was, uh, that will bear fruit. We don't have a timetable for this. But I just would like you to keep this in mind as you consider how to act on a micro level with your own families, in your workplaces, and in the context of uh, a completely, to me, crazed, counterproductive, and illegal war that's going on. And uh, we need as many people speaking truth in power as we can find. I've gone on, I knew, I knew this was like really going to be hard to even begin to condense and I had a lot more, but we have a few minutes for questions or comments, so I'd, I'd just like to allow that. Why, why do you think so few people have said anything? I mean, there's very little protest going on. Uh, very few people in high levels are really saying anything. Why do you think so? Well, I think the, the, the problem was exactly the problem that Ellsberg ran into at, at high levels. Uh, at high levels, people are protecting their jobs. They're protecting their offices. They want to get reelected. You know, the Congress was full of... Uh, progressive people at the time, you know, everyone that he met with wanted to stop the war, but they were not willing to pay the personal price for it. And this is the, this is the act, paying the personal price is, is, you know, in Buddhist terms, it's renunciation. You know, it's willing to, it's being willing to take a chance uh, because it's right, uh, not because uh, it's going to get you elected. Uh, so there are many people speaking the truth out in the world, but um, sadly, too few in uh, official ranks. Hi. Hi. Well, I was a freshman in college and I had my 18th birthday on November 5th, 1968. And unfortunately, that's the day for me because it's, it was, I thought being 18 was kind of cool. That was the day we elected Richard M. Nixon as president. Um, I was an Isla Vista POW, did a lot of work in Isla Vista during the martial law. Um, Reagan was at his best then and called in his blue panel of people after we had gone on and off on martial law. And they said, get your people the hell out of there. And um, I think what a lot of young people don't know, and I think that, that the textbooks have not taught that, is that we were in Vietnam a long time 
before the papers. Oh, I remember yeah. my cousin was a, um, a fighter pilot, and he was in Vietnam in the very late 50s. Right. And I have pictures from it. And the start of the anti-war was years and years before it gained momentum with military families. Mm -hmm. And right now, I think what we're suffering from is the people that are delusion enough to think that their sons and daughters are fighting for America. Um, I think I was like the week that we went into um, Iraq, um, I was at a family gathering, which I have very little family, so I really treasure this one, though I don't know why. And I opened my big non-Buddhist mouth and said, here we go again, another Vietnam. We're going to have to play the whole thing over again. Hopefully not as fast, I mean for as long. Hopefully we can get this over faster. But it's going to take a, you know, a enormous effort to get the ball rolling faster and faster in order to get out of there. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. Yes. Maybe one more, and I'm, I'm conscious of the time. There was a comment there. Here's the question or challenge that I always run into yeah. in, in speaking truth to power and right speech is when somebody like our government and our president are lying, how does one with right speech articulate that without attack? You have to find a way to do that. Uh, no enemies. You know, uh, you can oppose their policies, but you... Uh, you have to find a really, this is a really difficult point to practice, to hold them in your heart as human beings who want happiness as you do, you know, who are caught in some delusion, and to recognize you actually have the capability of being as deluded as they do. Uh, and from that point of view, to be compassionate to them, but not you know compassionately and respect and respectfully uh, demure from their assertions, and you have to it calls for tremendous patience patience is the is the key to all this. Uh, it's very hard to be patient in the face of, uh, you know, systemic violence, uh, high body count, uh, various things that we're experiencing. But we actually have to be patient, which means tolerate the blows, take that in, in ourselves, and develop a capacity to do that, so that we can keep responding and keep putting out the truth. It may be that we don't speak to them. We may speak to someone else. I don't have the answer, but uh, the essential thing is not to personalize it between 
say myself and them or you and and them but to keep trying to turn towards them as people and to turn away from the the actions and mistruths they may be putting out this is very very difficult this is and this is the core of our practice the core of our practice is to keep turning towards sentient beings that's our responsibility to uh, awaken with them and the first thing we do is we look at those sentient beings in our mind I'm sorry I really would have liked to have more time for discussion uh, but uh, that's the way it is (laughs) so thank you very much